At night, I went from farm to farm, from village to village, stealing what little food I could find. By the coming of every dawn, I would find some barn or byre where I thought I might safely sleep away the daylight hours. But it was in just such a barn that I was last discovered. The farm dog must have found me out, for he set up such a hullabaloo of howling and barking that the farmer came running from the house with his blunderbuss. Again I ran for the hills and thought at first I had escaped clean away. But looking back over my shoulder, I saw to my horror a troop of redcoats riding out after me in hot pursuit. I knew now that I must surely be caught and killed, for the open hillside offered little place to hide myself. But when death threatens, a man will do all he must to survive. I found strength where there should have been none, and ran on and on until at last my legs would carry me no further, and I fell on my knees in the heather. A full said of shots echoed through the glen. I closed my eyes and waited for death, praying only that it would be quick. But when at last the echoes died away, I found myself still alive. I opened my eyes and looked back. The troop of redcoats was galloping along the ridge of the hill on the far side of the glen, and following them, any number of villagers on horse and foot, all whooping with the excitement of the hunt. To my utter joy and amazement, I could see now that they had not been hunting me at all, but were quite another quarry, one I could not rightly discern, for it was far away, and sprang so swiftly through the heather, at once too big for a fox and too small for a deer. Both quarry and hunters were soon gone away over the crest of the hill, leaving me on my knees and thanking God in his mercy for my lucky escape. But my prayers of thanksgiving were interrupted by the sound of more shooting, a thunderous volley that clattered about the glen and was followed by the emptiness of a terrible and ominous silence. I heard then, resounding through the hills, the same triumphant blood-curdling yell I had heard on the battlefield at Culloden Moor when the redcoats had charged us and put us to flight. I knew that the hunt had made its kill, and I pitied the unfortunate beast whatever it was, and thanked God most fervently that it was not me. I lay still on the heather for some time. I made my way down the glen, across the tumbling barn and up over the steep hillside, beyond where the hunt had made their kill. This was my only way out, for there was, I knew, a high and impassable mountain at my back, and a village full of redcoats below me, both of which I knew I must avoid. So I set out southwards along a rough trail, having no idea where I should go, only that I must put up as much distance between myself and the troop of redcoats as I possibly could. I had not gone far when I came across a great flat rock, and freshly painted in blood upon it, I found these words which I read in the last glimmer of the day. Near this rock was killed the last wolf in Scotland. 24th of April, 1746. I knew not if this claim were true or false. Indeed, at the time, I knew little enough of wolves, only that by repute the wolf was a species of wild and savage dog that stalked the countryside, preying on sheep, and even sometimes, it was believed, on human flesh, so that whenever and wherever they were found, they were mercilessly hunted down and killed. As I stood there contemplating how strange it was that my own life had been saved by such a creature, I heard at some small distance from me in the dark of the heather, the sound of whining and yelping. Within a dozen paces, I came upon what I perceived to be at once a wolf pup. I was not fearful, 
for I could see that it was too weak to do me any harm. Neither, it seemed, was he in the least fearful of me. He paid me not the slightest heed when I crouched over him, but instead licked the ground, crying piteously as though his heart would break. I talked to him as I crouched down and gentled him. Come, I said, feeling at once an instant kinship between us. The kinship of orphans, the kinship of fugitives. This is no place for you, this is no place for either of us. I live now only because your mother died, so I shall care for you as she would. That much I owe her, that much I owe you. You are alone in this world as I am, but if we are together, then we are not alone, are we? We shall go where we go always together. Trust me. With some difficulty, for he was heavier than I had thought, I gathered him up and held him in my arms. Though he struggled against me and snarled and snapped, he was not strong enough to do me much hurt. And I shall call you Charlie, I told him, for you are bonny and a prince among wolves. From that day on, I had always two mouths to feed, two reasons to survive, and therefore my resolve to do so was redoubled. I passed the long summer months hidden away with Charlie in a deserted croft, high in the hills, living only on what I could catch or trap from the streams and hills about me. Being summer, there were rabbits and hares enough, and trout too in the barren, and Charlie needed little encouragement to eat. The more I fed him, the more he came to trust me. Though I looked for it at first, and feared it too, I saw in him no sign of a wolf's reputed savagery. He curled his lip and bared his teeth only at me in jest as we played together. And play indeed we did, romping and rolling in the heather, wrestling with one another like children. Even when he bit me, he only bit gently, in affection, leaving me with raw knuckles perhaps, but no real hurt ever done to me. He grew quickly from a pup into a young wolf, and as he did so, he came to know me and to love me, perceiving me now as his provider and his friend so that he would follow me wherever I went, his nose touching the back of my leg, as if to remind me constantly of his presence, of his reliance upon me, of his affection for me. In my turn, I came to look upon Charlie as my only friend in a world full of enemies. I had no other. Wolf and rebel, we were inseparably bound together by the very nature of our common plight. So it was that Charlie talked to me, and I talked to Charlie and like the good friend he was, he seemed always ready and willing to listen. The summer months passed into autumn, and we were still undisturbed in our remote hideaway in the hills. But with time to brood and winter approaching, I was becoming ever more anxious about our predicament. To survive a winter in this barren place would be hard, and I feared too that even here we must surely one day be discovered and hunted down, that a good fortune which had held for so long could not last much longer. I began to realise that if we were not to remain fugitives in these hills all our days, I must find some more permanent home elsewhere, across the sea, in some more hospitable land, in France perhaps. Some Frenchmen had fought bravely alongside us at Culloden, so I knew that the French were sympathetic to our rebellion and might give us sanctuary. I had only once seen the sea in Edinburgh. I remembered the ships lying at anchor, so I determined to return there as soon as possible. I thought we might be able to lose ourselves in amongst the great crowds that thronged the streets, but even here I knew that I could scarce escape to remain unnoticed for long with Charlie at my side. 
tame though he was now, and biddable too, and in many respects much like any other large dog, there could be no doubt that Charlie did indeed by this time resemble what in fact he unmistakably was, a wolf. I knew well enough that almost no creature is more instantly recognisable than a wolf, and that none inspires more fear, no more hatred either. Discovery would mean certain death for both of us, wolf and man alike, a circumstance I tried to explain to Charlie as I set about the business of disguising him. I think I should never have discovered how this might be accomplished at all, had my eye not fallen one evening on a pair of discarded sheep shears hanging on the wall of the croft. I burned the rust off in the fire, sharpened the sheep shears on a stone, and set to work at once on Charlie. But Charlie made it plain that this was an indignity he deeply resented. He would growl at me and back away, refusing to stand still for me. Knowing that I could not restrain him against his will, for he was by now far too strong for me, and resorted to bribery, as I so often did with Charlie. I discovered that if I coaxed him almost constantly with rabbit meat, he would, albeit unwillingly, stand and endure the sheep shears. Until I began to cut his hair, I never imagined a wolf could grow so much of it, and so thick. When, after some hours, I had done my clipping, Charlie had taken on the appearance of more of a bedraggled deerhound than a wolf. Although on close examination his great webbed feet and his amber eyes might betray him, I was satisfied that he no longer had the shape and form of a wolf, that he might indeed pass for a large hound. I can mind how he stood there, shivering in his humiliation, and looking up at me out of those baleful, accusing eyes, his tail between his legs. I would not, I thought, be easily forgiven. In this, I was mistaken. It seemed not to be in Charlie's nature to bear a grudge, and very soon we were once again the best of friends, 